Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We recently examined all facets of the Fort King Road, the federal military road that ran through the Seminole Reservation in the center of Florida, ranging from Fort King in the north of the reservation down to Tampa Bay and Fort Brooke. Fort King Road was many things in its short heyday, but it was most decidedly not a road to nowhere. It originated, or ended, depending on your perspective, at Fort King. As with the other wooden forts that the Army constructed during the Second Seminole War, this Florida climate has ensured that Fort King has long since returned to its natural organic state. Still, we can learn something about both the fort and life around the fort from archaeological examinations. In this episode, that's what we're going to do. What was Fort King? Why was Fort King put there? How did it serve the Army's purposes? When did the Army abandon it? How important was this fort? All those things. And with us to address them is Sean Norman. We'll discuss Gary's report on what it discovered from its survey and hammer into the results they found from an excavation at the Fort King Blacksmith Shop, the place for framing or amending metal devices. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Why was Fort King built? Fort King was definitely built for military purposes. While it wasn't necessarily designed for war, it was still designed for the same mechanisms of war. It still leads up to it, and it plays an active role in it. The fort is named for Colonel William King, but that is just happenstance, as he was the commander. It could have named it something else, I suppose. And from naming it for the fort, then it became the name of the road. If we would have had the unfortunate luck of having a captain or a Colonel uh, Cletus, we could have ended up with Fort Cletus's Road. What are considerations when you're going to build a fort? Before the fort was constructed, you need all these extra outbuildings, whether it be sheds or cooking areas or whatever. It would have been a small little area. And then once the fort was constructed, it's quite possible that the agent would have then utilized the fort for most of their activities. What's another key consideration? Another key thing is who builds it. Is it being built by a formal engineer? When you got out of West Point, the people who were elite went into one of the engineering groups because one engineering corps was in charge of building forts. So that would have been people like Robert E. Lee. Then there was the lesser engineering corps, which is more of things like roads and all that. Usually those were your second-rated people from West Point, and then you went on and on, and I assumed Dragoons were last. But it depended on who built it, because you didn't have engineers like Robert E. Lee able to slowly take his time in constructing Fort Monroe on the Virginia coast. On the other hand, these were often expedient, quick forts, and then you get forts like Fort Armstrong, Fort Alabama, which were probably constructed largely by militiamen, militiamen and volunteers. These people may have no experience at all doing this. They may have a fair amount of frontier carpentry experience, or they may have built forts in Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia before. The experience plays a tremendous role versus what the need is. Fort Cooper and Alabama were occupied for, what, about a month each? The other key thing is that Seminole don't have siege equipment. It's They don't have cannons. They're not using trebuchets or catapults or anything else that can really pierce a wall. Their key thing is if they want to destroy the fort, they can burn it. You build the fortifications for what you need. How long did they last? 
Fort King itself was closed down after initially being constructed in 1827 and then wasn't reopened again until after the Treaty of Haines Landing, which stipulated the removal of this. Other forts like Fort Foster wasn't constructed until the end of 1836. Fort Alabama had been on that location beforehand, but that had actually served as an outpost for a campaign rather than necessarily guarding the road. Armstrong and Bader also about that same time, late 1836, early 1837. Where did they build this fort vis-a-vis the Seminole Reservation, and what military message did its presence send? They build this fort at North End. The idea behind the fort is that it's supposed to be there to keep the peace, keep homes from going on to reservation property, and then it's supposed to be a logistical location for distributing goods that stipulated in the treaty, so distributing goods to the Seminole. In reality, the fort was probably more of A, to protect the Indian agents, which we know in the end it didn't do. It was also there definitely to have a strong military presence to provide a symbol of enforcement of the treaty. You had Fort Brooks standing alone, so having a twin fort was able to connect up to Fort Brooks it was able to provide support for that, able to pin in at least two sides of the reservation, you know, the western section, which is actually where most of the Seminole were concentrated anyway, in the northern and western section. What was its purpose and what was its stated purpose? Part of the construction of Fort King is definitely for the defense, the Indian agent. Governor Duval and Clinch were also part of the request for Fort King. It was really the Indian agent who was calling for it. There wasn't a great network from Tallahassee to this area. Like I said, during Cole's campaign, during the Wahoo Swamp campaign, Call sends troops out to Fort St. Mark's to Appalachie and goes to Old Town himself. He finds both establishments out of supplies and riddled with disease and low on population. When he gets to Old Town, he thinks that maybe he can muster some troops here. He'll definitely get more supplies. And that wasn't the case. If you're looking at toward the end of the first year of the war, places not that far from Tallahassee are in really, really poor condition. That means that there's really not a lot of great communication or at least a lot of travel. If it was so surprising to call when he arrived in Old Town, then that means there's not a lot of information going between Old Town and Tallahassee. Covering that wilderness between the Suwannee River and the Withlacoochee River until you get the series of encampments such as Camp Clinch near the mouth of the Withlacoochee River and you get the full occupation of the Cove of the Withlacoochee under Jessup, that entire area is a very dangerous portion of the war scape. Whereas Micanopy at least was getting direct supplied from Black Creek after Fort King was constructed in Fort Drain just before the war. I believe Fort Drain was constructed in 1835. Constructed shortly before the war, based hostilities were kind of ramping up due to Seminole resistance to remove a lot of its timing of it. So we call it the Fort King Road today, but I suppose it should be called, I don't know, the Tampa Bay Road or the Fort Brook Road or something like that. A number of forts would have been offshoots from the Fort King Road. What were some of these? You would have had these other obscure forts, and a lot of them are less well-known simply because things like Fort Dade's gotten some attention because of the Seminole Wars Foundation, and Fort Foster and Fort Alabama had attention because it's been excavated and there's a reconstructed fort there. I think if Henry Baker hadn't done the excavations in the 70s and they hadn't reconstructed that fort and they hold regular reenactments, most people probably never would have heard of Fort Foster either. Armstrong and McClure are two of the more obscure ones because these were, like Fort Dade, these were camping spots or way stations along the way. Fort Armstrong is located in Bushnell near Dade's battlefield. There's a little lake or pond um, a little farther north of the battlefield, a little northwest of it, that would have provided a good place for fresh water. 
and it was close to the trails leading into the Wahoo Swamp. But it was pretty short-lived and never saw any action. Fort Armstrong was actually constructed by the Tennessee Volunteers, who were still around at the end of Call's campaign as soon as Jessup took command. He decided to get the most use out of those men before their uh, enlistments ended. Fort McClure was a little farther to the north, the Warm Springs Hammock, and that was, again, one of the other military encampments, the camping place that had been known as Camp Wendell. Both of these forts were occupied very briefly, only for a couple of years. And in fact, when we get to talking about Fort King baggage report in the future, those forts didn't even have post return, at least as far as we know. There probably should be some, but they're not on record anywhere as far as we've been able to find at the moment. They were just gear places that never really saw action, but became small outposts simply because they were places that were repeatedly used by the military anyway. By at least building a small palisade or breastwork, you could at least provide an animal pen and then a place to keep maybe some supplies dry for soldiers. But both places were fairly short-lived and, and were closed within a year or two of their construction. Wendell probably would have been, I don't know who that's named after, it would have been one of the camps that people would have stopped at, just like you have that Fort Dade was a place where Gaines stopped, Eustace stopped there. Fort Dade had a few other names too. Like I think it might have been called Camp Gaines at one time, if I recall correctly. It just would have been named for some officer as they stopped along there. They probably would have had prescribed distances. They would have noted where fresh water would have been, and they would have had probably prescribed distances for how far a unit can march in a day, and Wendell just would have been a convenient stopping place. Fort McClure was constructed in 1839. Most of the references that you see are usually refer to repeated actions during various campaigns. Fort Dade, with both Eustace staying there and Dane staying there. Most of the time, the encampments are named during the war. There possibly could have been a decent way station, but prior to the war. They would have had repeated uses. It just wouldn't have been named Camp Wendell at the time. It just would have been a routine place to stop at that time. Just like you've got the breakfast pond. There was a reason to stop at the breakfast pond. Where Fort Armstrong is, the way the pond is today, it's just in a little agricultural field. It doesn't look like the best place to stop. I can imagine if you can continue on past the location for Fort Armstrong and you've got a better spring, I would imagine you keep moving. Central location of Fort McClure does sound like a reasonable stopping place for Dade's March at least. When you reached Fort King from Fort Brook, you'd probably be disappointed with how out of the way Fort King really was. Fort King would definitely be isolated. Fort Brook existed first. You can say that all forts during the war are essentially isolated, except for ones like maybe Fort Highland and at Gary's Ferry. Even places like Old Town on the Suwannee, which should have pretty easy direct access to Tallahassee without really the road being at risk of severing, was still a distant outpost that received almost no support from Tallahassee. Almost all outposts, towns, cantonments, they're all essentially isolated. I refer to Fort Brook as being isolated because it was constructed before Fort King. Even Fort King was constructed after the road was already built. As the war goes on, definitely Fort King's very isolated. Fort Brook never gets burned down. Even though Fort Brook gets abandoned, Colonel Lane has to retake it in October 1836 after everyone pulled out following Scott's campaign in the spring of 1836. Fort King definitely would have been isolated, and as the war goes on, that appears to be the case. One great difference between the forts is that Fort Brook could be reinforced very rapidly from the sea, Fort King would rely on a 100-mile march from the troops. Reinforcements are regularly landed at Fort Brook. That's how Gaines travels to Florida. That's how Jessup initially travels to Florida. That's how Colonel Lane's Indian Regiment travels to Florida. Later on, the Port of Texas definitely makes Tampa more accessible. Fort King was definitely isolated. Fort King completely abandoned in the summer of 1836 and burned. Doesn't get reconstructed until the following April. 
Fort King was definitely isolated. And the same thing, Micanopy. Micanopy ended up being isolated. And after the abandonment of that, even of all the other forts around it, even the lone U.S. military unit defending the town admitted that the location was indefensible at that time and had to withdraw back to Black Creek. As the war moves farther south, while Fort King would still be isolated, it's still difficult to get supplies in and out of, it at least loses that sense of danger. With things like the assassination of Wiley Thompson, even though Fort King is never really outright attacked itself, that idea that a government official can be murdered just outside the walls of the fort does lead to that sense of danger. The physical isolation never goes away, but at least the psychological isolation might be limited or declines a little bit as the war goes on. What was its purpose and what was its stated purpose? Part of the construction of Fort King is definitely for the defense, the Indian agent. Governor Duval and Clinch were also part of the request for Fort King. It was really the Indian agent who was calling for it. There wasn't a great network from Tallahassee to this area. Like I said, during Cole's campaign, during the Wahoo Swamp campaign, Cole sends troops out to Fort St. Mark's to Appalachia and goes to Old Town himself. He finds both establishments out of supplies and riddled with disease and low on population. When he gets to Old Town, he thinks that maybe he can muster some troops here. He'll definitely get more supplies. And that wasn't the case. If you're looking at toward the end of the first year of the war, places not that far from Tallahassee are in really, really poor condition. That means that there's really not a lot of great communication or at least a lot of travel. If it was so surprising to call when he arrived in Old Town, then that means there's not a lot of information going between Old Town and Tallahassee. Covering that wilderness between the Suwannee River and the Withlacoochee River until you get the series of encampments such as Camp Clinch near the mouth of the Withlacoochee River and you get the full occupation of the Cove of the Withlacoochee under Jessup, that entire area is a very dangerous portion of the war scape. Whereas Micanopy at least was getting direct supplied from Black Creek after Fort King was constructed in Fort Drain just before the war. I believe Fort Drain was constructed in 1835. Constructed shortly before the war base, hostilities were kind of ramping up due to Seminole resistance to remove a lot of its timing of it. So we call it the Fort King Road today, but I suppose it should be called, I don't know, the Tampa Bay Road or the Fort Brook Road or something like that. Our assumptions of the Indian Agency is that it's right next to Fort King because Fort King was to protect it, among other things. But that may not be what the archaeological record is telling us. There are a few conflicting reports as to where the Indian Agency is. There are some people looking for the Indian Agency south of Fort King by a couple miles. We have an area west where we could have it plotted. And then there are also mentions of it being at Silver Spring. No, it has never been formally tested at all by anyone, to my knowledge, even outside of our organization. But it is something that is still speculated on. We've considered, we do at least keep it in our mind of a potential project in the future the city sees that as, as a valuable addition. The officers at the military academy at West Point received basic engineering, but their book learning did not quite match up with the experience in the unforgiving swampy terrain of Florida. The training they had at West Point versus what they encountered down here is something very different. To a degree that still takes place in the military is when you have people constructing the forts under different conditions, elements are going to change. It's all dependent on what your local materials are, what the landscape is looking like. Hilda notes in her dissertation that forts aren't always on top of hills. But then again, forts can also be a decent ways away from water. There are some logical aspects that you think apply uniformly, but they don't necessarily. There might be a little bit of distance from water due to the concerns about mosquitoes 
and disease. On the other hand, you might not want to be on a hill because you may not need the view shed as much. Might want to be close to the water. You're dealing with sandy soils. And then the other problem that you have is there are a lot of areas where the limestone is really close to the soil. Fort King, by being on a hill, they're able to dig relatively substantial trenches for the walls. If the limestone were a few feet higher up, that might not be possible. Absolutely, the landscape is important. In determining where to construct them, I presume that the requirements for the fort and the requirements for the Indian Agency would be different. One being a military use and the other strictly civilian. The requirements for a fort would be different from the requirements for the agency. The location for Fort King, there must have been some specific reason. I'm guessing it's actually the seep spring combined with the hill that it's on and then proximity to the road. Whereas the Indian agency would have just been constructed first on what would have been a suitable piece of land. And then the road would have been constructed. The road might have been the dictating factor. To my knowledge, the agency isn't actually built on the road. The agency is off the road by a few miles, at least. How many people would have been out there with the Indian agent? He was walking around a distant area. Before the fort, the Indian agent would have been just out here by himself. The agent would have been used to dealing with these people. And Thompson, in particular, had an up-and-down relationship with Osceola between putting him in chains versus supposedly being kind of friendly with him at times. Imagine it would have been nothing for him to see. Oh, look at that. A small group of them all coming up. That's pretty much all a historically-based event. You're never going to be able to find the archaeology of Wiley Thompson's fascination. That is one of those things that, unfortunately, archaeology can't clarify. Well, we have a reconstructed fort for Fort King. We don't really have anything in our imagination to what the Indian Agency looked like. Was it a building, a complex of buildings? What was it like? The Indian Agency would have been one or more structures. You would have had, the agent would have lived there, seen that there was a blacksmith shop associated with it initially. There might have been a trading post with him. It would have been a small accumulation of structures. Where was Indian agent Wiley Thompson assassinated? Was it at the fort, at the Indian Agency, somewhere in between? What do we know? I believe Thompson was assassinated on the reservation because the fort would have been just inside the reservation. It seems an odd question to raise when two sides are at war, but who would have had jurisdiction on the assassination of Wiley Thompson within the Seminole Reservation? Prosecution is dubious when you think that the things that Andrew Jackson was able to do during the First War. He kills two British citizens and two Creeks. The Creeks don't even get a trial at all, and the British citizens got a trial, but were still executed even though the punishment was not deemed to execute them, at least by the court. How widely used was the military court in this period? Military court system, I would say, are very limited because Dade's battle happens simultaneously with Wiley Thompson's assassination. It's bigger fish to fry instead of just bringing out a, a trial, just opens up the war in earnest. And to be fair, there have already been engagements around Micanopy going back to the prior November, month beforehand. I think there were bigger issues than just prosecuting people. Even the capture of Osceola later on is probably mostly symbolic. And of course, it actually backfires on the U.S. government. Where would one find trading posts? Off the reservation or within the reservation? And to whom did they serve? Trading posts would have been usually for the Seminole. We have some evidence that there might have been a trading post around Fort King, any place where you do have large civilian populations, but there shouldn't really be civilian populations inside the reservation at all. Traders might like being near at least the fort. There will always be economic beneficiaries of the U.S. government. There might have been some seasonal aspects to it, but they would have at least been part-time, if not permanent residents on the reservation. Same thing in the Creek traders just living among them. How many trading posts were there and who got to use them? 
you have numerous trading posts, and those are for the Seminole. handful of traders going all the way back into the colonial period, Stanton and Leslie, have been given permission to trade or access the Seminole. They would build trading posts throughout the, before the reservation, all the way going back into Spanish times. They would have moved trading posts to key towns. One of the things that Brent Wiseman postulated was that you have towns start fissioning so they have more access to trading posts. So you actually get an increase of towns during the late 1700s and early 1800s with the addition of more trading posts in the region. Now let's shift our gears to the archaeology from the Fort King site. What are some impediments to successful archaeological digs? With archaeology in general, the biggest problem that you have cultural resources, just like you might have food, water, fuel, something like that. It's not a renewable resource. A site is done being made by whomever made it, whether that's prehistoric people or that's just a historic ranch home built in 1950s that would now be deemed historic. But as soon as that site is abandoned, it starts to grade. That's a problem throughout everything. I go to a lot of these battlefields and Literally, the topsoil of all these farmlands is missing across a large segment of western peninsula Florida, suggesting there's just a lot of damage that's been done in the last 200 years, 150 years. When you compound that with something like Fort Brook, such an important place, it was literally the reason why the town was founded. Fort Brook became the center of the town, and it's an optimal location to this day. It makes sense why it got covered so quickly, but obviously it's horrifying. When you read about the cemeteries that they're having to excavate under a hockey rink parking lot, that kind of stuff shouldn't happen. What makes the Fort King excavations particularly useful? One great thing about Fort King is from the prolonged excavations that we've had is a lot of archaeology is kind of building on other projects. I think we have the best collection, we have the best data from Seminole War sites because of the prolonged excavation. Just more recovered material and it's being consistently used. Probably the stuff at Fort Brook being done is there are private companies working on it. So there's not really a prolonged research interest. The next time we're more aspects of Fort Brook are exposed. It might be done by a completely different company, and there's really no real continued interest. It's literally just a job out there to make money. I feel like you're not necessarily learning. Hopefully there'll be some information from it that I can glean. Luckily there are some good people working on the project who don't have that continued interest. Whereas Fort Dade, literally every project, we're expanding the database. So you're getting more and more comparative information. It's helpful for side projects. So Gary encountered the smithing debris in 2009. It would be 10, 11, 12 years later when we're actually excavating that blacksmith shop. The key thing is, is finding potential is very interesting. A lot of times you'll find stuff and you might not even know what you're looking at at the time. When you're finding just bar stock and if you don't know what a clinker looks like, if you've never really used coal, then it's just one of these small, weird little glassy rocks that you're finding. And they would make no sense because they just don't naturally occur on this landscape. When you build projects and you combine them together, everything makes a lot more sense. In the recovery of the grounds for Fort King, its isolation all these years were actually to its benefit. Fort King really is a blessing because it's one of the other major forts during the war. Other just super, super important places. It is fantastic that it was found in a really large country town. While the site has been both legally and illegally artifact hunted, if you look at the formal timeline of how that all happened, 
There were a lot of complications, in which case there were times where land trusts weren't able to purchase the property and all that. But the landowners, the McCalls, at times agreed not to sell the property, even when the acquisition money wasn't available. They easily could have just sold it to somebody else, but they held on to the property and waited for about a decade until they actually handed over the property and did it in the right fashion. We talk about public-private community partnerships. How does Fort King fare with this triad? Fort King is a great example. Civilian organizations, historical societies organizing this kind of thing, collaboration with city government, state government, and with professional entities like ourselves. But it also shows the time frame that all this works on. Think about it, it was 1987 that this place started getting attention. We're in 2020, and we're just now working on some of the, the buildings. I mean, this is a slow process in relatively good preservation condition. How much of a contrast is this with the Fort Brooks site in Tampa? We are immensely lucky because none of this would have been possible in Tampa. It's the area is too developed. There would have been too much pressure to monetize the location and nothing would have ever worked at these time frames. We are very, very lucky. What you learned at Fort King, you could apply to other projects? It helped with Gary doing Fort Micanopy and Fort Dade roughly around the same time. Each of those forts were built differently. When you get that realization that forts are not uniform in any means, it makes you really reconsider your interpretations. You have to be a little more thoughtful. Not everything's going to look like Fort Laramie. <laughs> Sean, from what you've described, this is a hard and arduous undertaking regardless. I can't imagine how you could do it without community involvement and community support. We are very lucky to have really the right set of circumstances of interested locals, landowners who actually care, and just good collaborative partners. I couldn't tell you offhand how much between land acquisition and all that, because they've also purchased an adjacent lot, which had some excavations on it, but the artifacts haven't been formally analyzed, which will be one of the things that but they are in Gulf Archaeology's possession, so we will analyze them once we get it fully moved into the Archaeological Center. How did community partnerships help with the reconstruction of Fort King? When you think about the reconstruction of the fort, that was used using a special category state matching grant from the Division of Historical Resources for Florida, and that included both the archaeology and the construction of the fort, but it's a matching grant. The Fort King Heritage Association has done a wonderful job of fundraising from the local populace, both in-kind services, materials, as well as uh, cash. That grant was at least $200,000. It's, it's when you look at it, all the expenses, I would say over the 30 years, it's it's got to be around a million dollars. In doing reconstructions on the original site, what kind of problems do you encounter? The problem is, is a lot of times putting a reconstruction on the original site usually does significant damage to the original site. A lot of times it's discouraged. For example, like Fort Mitchell, when they were constructing that in Alabama, there was a lot of fight because it risked damaging the original fort. Sometimes people completely excavate it out or excavate large portions of it, like Henry Baker did at Fort Foster in Alabama. But the idea at Fort King was we wanted to cover as much of the fort, try to protect it, but still make it relatively accessible. Given that this fort was placed on a key hill, there's really no no other place you can put it without dramatically losing the effect of the way the original fort would have been placed. It is placed on the current location, but it is offset. It's offset by 10 feet, if I recall, or 20 feet. So it only crosses the walls in a couple portions. In addition to that, the original fort is covered in anywhere between three and nine feet of sand, depending on which side. They had to build up the southwestern side of the hill nowadays after it had been depleted through erosion. The fort is buried underneath the modern fort 
but we can still get to large portions, particularly the interior. We did that project purely to find the layout to help the city impact it as little as possible. How impressed are you with the reconstructed Fort King? I would argue that the Fort King reconstruction is the most accurate Seminole War reconstruction. Fort Foster is a little bit of an imagined. There are aspects of it, but it's overbuilt, basically built with telephone poles. It's a nice-looking fort, but it's a little overmatched. Now, granted, when Foster built the fort, he built a really substantial fort compared to the rest of them because he was trying to show off. Fort Christmas, again, is an elaborate rendition of a fort that really didn't serve any major purpose during the war. What we have at Fort King is, it's just unique. I've never been to Fort Christmas myself. Luckily, Florida Public Archaeology Network, when Kevin Gadesco was there, did a wonderful drone flyover so you can see it in great detail. They were predecessors, and I would say what was more useful were the existing studies. Henry Baker's uh, report for Fort Alabama and Fort Foster, their two reports, are very, very, very small. They're like 10-page pamphlets. But it's still a fair amount of detail. It just it doesn't have a lot of extra information in it. When might we say Fort King was rediscovered? Fort King proper gained attention in the city and the county, Cala and Marion County, around the late 80s. There had been one informal study where a guy really hadn't written much up about it, and then there had been various artifact collectors, both illegally and legally, collecting artifacts around Fort King. A lot of people knew about it, but nothing was really done. By 91, city had actually started doing a little bit of work. An archaeologist named Bruce Piatek had been able to do a little bit of augering study there. Then it became the long process of the city gradually acquiring property. That would eventually become Fort King Park today. In 1994, they were able to acquire 15 acres that's the northern side of the park nowadays. And that section that really has the fort on it. Gary Ellis was brought in to do the study on that one. What follows is a series of projects trying to combine preservation and interpretation to what we have today. There ended up being another study around 1998. That was when Gary conducted a survey of the southern 22 acres. So that's the area the fort is built today. And that was more formally looking for the general bounds of the fort itself. Because the initial studies, while they found the artifacts, they couldn't quite pin down the fort because the area had been farmed for years. So it turns out that some of the artifact distribution they had was skewed because people would clear the artifacts out of the plowland and then would drop them at the edges of the fields. You end up with wonky artifact distributions that aren't reflective of the original layout of the fort. Gary loosely looked around that, and then in 2009, Gopher Archaeology did another study under Gary Ellis where they looked at various other structures associated with the fort, and that's what led to information to things like the blacksmith shop today. Since then, we completed a project in 2017, which was a formal look at the layout of the fort. And that was to find the exact locations of at least enough of the walls to make a determination of the layout and to help offset the construction of the fort. So in that one there, we were able to encounter portions of the east, north, and south walls, as well as brick fragments from the footers of several of the structures, particularly west of the fort. Besides knowing where it was, it also helped with something else the county wanted to do. The project was to help inform the placement of the reconstruction. That was the key reason. What are some notable artifacts that you found in the Fort King dig? 
There are the fun little finds that a lot of other people love, which you can see on display right now in the Archaeological Center. One of the more unique finds that really interested people is we have what appears to be a Andrew Jackson commemorative cufflink. It appears to be associated either he's running for election or re-election or something like that. And it's one of a kind. You can't really find information about it online or anything like that. And it's unique. And so that was one little interesting aspect of military political life at the time that it's just a random little object you'd never see. Two other things we have on display there are we've got a couple of coins. I believe that one's a dime and a half dime. It's always interesting to see coins on a site because it, they set hardened date on there. If I show you a pipe bowl fragment, I can say this pipe bowl existed from 1810 through 1840. But you have something with a key date that really puts time and space together. Fort King was obviously a very big project. What are some smaller projects that Gary has done that are in that vicinity? In addition to the large projects at Fort King, we've done a series of smaller projects for different preservation aspects or just helping out the park in other ways. Since then, we've done a couple studies of the heat spring northeast of the fort that has included dealing with modern erosion from development around the area to kind of restore the spring to what it would have been closer to what it would have looked like when the fort was occupied to restore those kind of conditions. And then we've done other projects like they put in a new driveway to the museum at the McCall House last year. We monitored the construction of that and we were able to find what appears to be one of the oldest structures on the property. It looks like a weird blend of brick, which we know they made homemade brick there. They were not able to bring in brick from any of the supply areas. And we ended up finding a very unique style of structure that if we hadn't been there when the old driveway was removed, we wouldn't have been able to document it. Once again, we were able to document it without digging it out. And it was, again, covered by the driveway. So ultimately, when the future museum gets constructed on the adjacent lot, we'll be able to remove that driveway and hope conduct some more interpretations of it. So what's Gary's intent with the blacksmith shop? What we're doing with Ant Remains of a Blacksmith Shop is we're going to be able to construct a blacksmith shop on the property that will be far more used and interpretive value to people. Today, we may not realize how important the blacksmith was at a fort, at a way station, almost anywhere. Gary is doing important archaeological work on the blacksmith shop at Fort King. What can you tell us about that? Right now, Gary Ellis is in the project of finishing up the fort for our most recent excavations at the Fort King blacksmith shop that we, we definitely have cultural material related to a blacksmith shop there's no i mean one there's no anvil because that would have been harvested immediately but no there's not as much of a formal permanent hearth that we see there in any form of forge but we see all the other scrap metal we, we see aspects of the clinkers and stuff from the coal and all that it makes more sense when you look back at this and realize that oh, units might have actually traveled with their own blacksmith rather than necessarily having a permanent blacksmith always at a fort. It might have been something like a building that would have been used by whatever technician comes through at that time. You might have had an artificer manning the blacksmith shop for a couple of weeks while he was stationed there. There was a blacksmith originally associated with the Indian agency. That probably would have been a civilian. There's a possibility of a trading post and other things. There's an antique term they use, artificer. What does it mean? From what I understand, is almost a general handyman. It would have been the person who would have been in charge of maintaining the artillery devices. Probably would have been just as much as repairing the carriages and the limbers. Probably would have been a lot of metallurgy work on the cannon barrel itself. The technical definition is somebody who maintains field artillery. 
and it's a term that, at least to my knowledge, goes away. Either that or there's a lot of Civil War literature that has been highly derelict on describing artificers. I think he would have served much in the way that the blacksmiths and the farriers probably would have been. He probably would have been your general handyman if more appropriate people weren't on hand. We learn things like how artificer was not a term I used in my life. Now it is, and now I get a lot of puzzled looks. I'm pretty sure if you were to Google Artificer nowadays, you'd probably see more Dungeons and Dragons references to it than anything else. In our respective fields, how important is it to be sharing information among fellow scholars? The great thing about all we talk about in several of these podcasts is the building of information. You do one project so that information from that builds onto the next project. None of the positions noted on the post returns gunsmith. Who are your gunsmiths then? And that's presumably that would have been your artificer or your blacksmith, or if need be, that might have even been your farrier. It's there are a lot of other support roles. We haven't reconstructed the medical facilities at Fort King too, but that would have played a key role in a place where disease is rampant. It's the whole system behind the war. Other than the archaeological artifacts and dimensions of these different buildings, you have other plans for them as well. What are your more hands-on plans? There is a long-term comprehensive plan to where we will eventually excavate some of the interior buildings and make those and provide accurate information so that those can be reconstructed as well. For example, the project that, like I mentioned earlier, that uh, Gary's currently finishing up is in the blacksmith shop. So this is located just northeast of the fort, outside the walls by about 30 or 40 feet. And so we're excavating the layout of that, making our interpretation so that the city can put in a working demonstrators and teaching blacksmith shop at the fort. We will probably do that with several of the buildings on the interior, although it's always possible that we end up with ghost frames and interpretations as well, depending on how they want to populate the area. But we'll expand on a variety of other structures, both inside and outside the fort over 10 years or so. What does Gary's various surveys and excavations enable at Fort King? More informed interpretation. We have the longest prolonged excavation while still maintaining preservation. We're not trying to excavate out the site, just enough to inform us on key areas to bring interpretation to light. You don't have all the property that had been covered with the Fort King complex, but they do seem to be acquiring it lot by lot as they come available. In between the Daughters of the American Revolution property used to be the cemetery. All the bodies have since been removed and the rest of the Fort King property. One of the houses that made this gap on the property has since been purchased and that is now an archaeological space. It's the archaeological center. We've recently opened up new exhibits in there. When volunteers are in hand at Fort King Museum, they're able to walk you down to the new archaeological center. We're anticipating doing more activities down there. We'll be storing artifacts from the excavations at the Fort King site now, which is wonderful. We'll be able to do more processing on site. We'll be able to train volunteers as well as do more demonstrations. And what's the end game for this? To make this a working park, sort of like the kind of things that you would see in St. Augustine or even a light version of like Williamsburg. Might not be full living history, but the idea is do bring multiple aspects of both the history and how you document the history. All right, Sean, what do you like best about all this? My favorite part is probably the interpretation. It's always enjoyable to sit there and tell people about the fort. With each project, we learn more ourselves. The idea that we're building something that people can come back to and there'll always be more to learn and always be more to see. Sean Norman, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. It's always a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. 
Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.